We're back again with another interesting guest on the My Journey podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the interviews we've released so far. This time, though, we're going to be hearing from someone who's probably had the most varied career out of all of my guests to date. I'll tell you a little bit more about her in a short while, but to summarise, she's had a very successful career in TV, including senior and board positions in some of the biggest organisations within the industry. But nowadays, you're more likely to find our guest on a stage at a comedy club. And the story of how that came about is certainly an interesting one. However, as now is becoming customary, I'm going to quickly remind you about why I'm here hosting this podcast. I'm Matt Johnson, and I could be referred to as a bit of a podcast addict, but my day-to-day role is social media marketing for both businesses and personal brands. If you're interested in growing your brand on social media, then drop me an email at matt at thematjohnson.co.uk. That's matt, M-A-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N. But back to today's podcast where our guest is Callie Beaton. I first came across Callie when she was performing her work in progress show, Adultery, at Hull Comedy Festival last year, and I found her story and background fascinating. I'm really happy to have been able to get her on the podcast, and I hope you find her story as enthralling as I did. And if you did, a five-star review for the podcast would be much appreciated. Finally, one last thing I need to mention before we get into today's podcast, a big thank you to David Summerbell and the Barclays Eagle Labs team for providing a venue for this recording, as if I'm being honest, it probably wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have come to the rescue. Okay, so now let's get into the interview. This is the My Journey podcast with Callie Beaton. Welcome to the My Journey podcast, Callie Beaton. How are you today? I'm all right. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for taking part. Um, So we're going to talk about your career. You've had a bit of a mixed career. uh, Yes. Almost like a split right down the middle of two different careers. A schizophrenic career. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But we'll start right at the beginning in education. Yeah. So you went to school in Shaftesbury, was it? Yeah, in Dorset. Yes, I grew up in Dorset. So, yeah. How did you find that school experience? Um, I talk a bit about this on stage. I was not your, um, I was not your kind of classic fit in kind of a kid. Uh, my parents were both teachers, which makes it a bit complicated, as I'm sure lots of your listeners either know or can imagine. Um, and I did go to the school where they taught for five years, which was really hard. And I was really unpopular. Um, and I was one of those really like, I was kind of a fat, unsporty, unattractive ginger kid. So I, I didn't really, I wouldn't have fitted in anywhere very well. And then I went to my local school to do my, uh, what were then called O-levels, but are now called GCSEs. Um, and I fitted in a bit better there. And then I left home when I was 16 to go to college somewhere else for my A-levels because Dorset sort of, I think Dorset's very beautiful. I love going back now, but it didn't quite suit me as a schoolgirl. It was almost like a fresh start as well for you had you yeah I've reinvented myself lots of times along the way if it doesn't work well I bail and I start as if I'm a new person uh, so yes going to Salisbury in Wiltshire which is only 20 miles away but in those days you know going off independently to a sixth form college felt like a big move and then when I did my A-levels quite independently there then I went and came up to London and I've been in London most of my life so I gradually got to the place that suits me better. I was going to say you moved to was it Goldsmiths? university yeah it was at English and drama that you studied yeah you've done your research Matt well done um yes and actually again may may be of interest to to some people listening who aren't quite at that stage yet so um I really wanted to go do either Oxbridge or to go to Bristol so I, I was really looking at those kind of Russell Group unis 
and then I ended up kind of doing all the wrong things doing A-levels and partying a lot and, and dating all the wrong kind of people and I, I went really kind of a bit off the rails so my A-levels weren't great and thank goodness Goldsmiths which is obviously a very reputable um, part of London University uh, University of London luckily they also took people based on interview as well as grades and I'd done a good interview for them and I think they gave me a bit of wiggle room on the grades so it's funny because at the time it felt terrible that I'd missed the boat for Oxbridge and Bristol but looking back at my career now I ended up in exactly the right degree so again if anyone listening is thinking oh maybe their A-levels haven't gone so well or maybe life's taken a bit of a turn those turns can be what makes you so don't lose heart I would say. I always say to people as well that I speak to about grades in university is that what the university advertises as their requirement grades if you can get in front of them or if you can just impress them in some way, they are to do normally be a little bit more flexible yeah. in those grades. So yeah. there is always opportunity there. Yeah, charm goes a long way, I think. Yeah. And how <laughs> did you find that course? Was it a good course? Yeah, I loved it. Um, it was yeah, it was a three-year course in drama and English, and it was quite full-on. Uh, you did a lot of practical stuff. So whereas most people are having like four contact hours a week, we had two full days of whatever it might be: acting, training, directing, television, radio. It was a really hands-on kind of course and uh, and then the English part of it was virtually as full as if we'd done a single honours in English so it was definitely quite full on um, it was quite different to some people's uni experience because it isn't a campus university so again I was living really very independently it meant you had to really kind of make a bit more of an effort to make friends so it felt a bit more like having a job than going to uni in a way um, but I was very lucky because so they had a television specialism. In your third year, you could specialise in telly. And by then, I really knew that's what I wanted to do. But it was massively competitive. And I didn't get on to the telly specialism. So then I just wrote letters in the days before emails. I literally must have written 200 letters to anyone I could like look up in yellow pages. I don't know how we even found out who anyone was without internet. But somehow we did. And then I managed to get a placement at Children's BBC, literally just by writing letters. I didn't know anyone. And I got assigned to two different productions that were going on. So I met the then head of children's television, who was a very, very powerful person in the media. I met a couple of writers, one of whom was Andrew Davis, who's gone on to be one of the best screenwriters in the country at the time when he was doing kind of kids screenwriting and wasn't known. So by sheer sort of persistence, I ended up getting to know some people in television, getting some stuff on my CV because I wrote a dissertation about children's television. And then literally I wrote another however many hundred letters when I graduated. And this dissertation was the size of a phone book. And I would literally just take it in with me to interviews and sort of, obviously no one read it, but they flicked through it. And at least they could see that I was hugely committed to my subject area. So it was really, I got, I was like a dog with a bone. I wanted to work in television and I had no links and I just did not stop till my teeth met until I got in as a runner, yeah. Brilliant. Um, so would you say it was due to university that you found your passion for TV? Um, or did you have an inkling beforehand? It's sort of, I don't quite know how it all came together. Really, I, what I do know is I thought I was going to be an actor and it became very clear to me once I got into an environment where there were some really good actors that I was not one of the good actors. So it became clear to me that maybe, and I, I got to know some professional actors at that time. I dated one for a bit who was a reasonably big name in soaps and stuff. And I just thought, oh, this is, this is not for me. I'm not good enough at acting and my I'm too fragile as a person. I couldn't cope with the rejection, too insecure. So television, um, working... Yeah, I thought I'd like to work in production and television. I didn't mean to end up in the business side of television, even though it's been a very lucrative career. So I really thought I wanted to be in production. Um, I don't know if it would have suited me or not, but that's not the way it went. 
So how did you, I know you said obviously you found university a bit more like a job, so did you find that transition into the world of work uh, maybe a bit easier than some of you? Definitely, colleagues? yeah, and I was working full-time by July after I finished uni, so full-time and never sort of stopped working really, um, so... And at the time, you know, I know this isn't um, this is not a podcast about the ins and outs of my murky mind, but I was definitely I was quite an insecure person as a teenager and a person in my twenties. I've written, I wrote a piece about this in the Guardian a couple of weeks ago, and again, maybe heartening for people who are younger than me. I'm fifty now to know that it, I didn't really find out who I was. I have the confidence of who I was for many, many years. So for me, kind of keeping working and not not kind of daring to go traveling or do some stuff that was a bit more free-flowing kind of saved me as a person so it looks like a success strategy but actually it was because I just felt really inadequate and I just kept overachieving so it it looks good but it came from a place that wasn't particularly happy or secure. So I'm getting the sense that you're obviously quite tough on yourself like you've got quite high standards potentially. Yes one could say that one could. Yeah (laughs) but do, do, do you think as well like um, obviously you spread your wings a bit when you went to college spread your wings when then you went to uni does, does your family like that teachers as parents did that have any influence on you at all? Um, my parents were very very traditional so um, I, I was brought up in a in a yes a pretty traditional environment and my brother who was older than me and still is older than me um, he, he's under two years older than me so we're close and he didn't really rebel so my older brother just kind of like he just kind of complied with everything. He was a very disappointingly unrebellious teenager. So when I came out of the gates, I think probably quite a normal teenager, everybody was I'm like, you know, this is awful. And I thought, oh, it's not awful. It's just that he didn't do it. And then I think the more everyone around me conformed, the more rebellious I got. So I was really wayward. And I suppose there was lots to rebel on. My parents weren't strict with me, but they were very innocent. And so my kids, who are now, you know, at uni age... I'm very, I'm, I mean, they always joke, they say they sort of haven't done as much as I did because I've always been really open. So they're like, their rebellion is not to be as stupid as I was and to sort of take a bit better care of themselves. So yeah, maybe there's a bit of, I don't know, I mean, I think I was, I came out of the womb rebellious and fighting, so I don't know to blame it on. I've got a bit calmer as life's gone by, a little bit more sensible. And then just quickly, because it's quite interesting, obviously you've got kids that are now going at that uni age, what are the big differences you're seeing between their experiences and your experience? So my kids are, I guess, what you would call Generation Z. So my um, my oldest one was born in 1997, so they're just below the kind of millennial cut-off demographically. Um, I would say the biggest thing I notice about my children is that they can play the game of life far more competently than I could. So it's true that maybe that generation are a little bit less good at kind of literally the kind of changing light bulbs, paying bills sorting those things out but emotionally they are far more intelligent than I was and they've got much more self-esteem they're very sort of grounded and they and they've traveled the world both of them and they do incredible things and they just seem to kind of believe in themselves and have their feet on the ground I didn't believe in myself at all and my feet were never on the ground so somehow I've managed to grow grow a couple of kids who are the kids that I would have really loved to be at their age yeah and so going back to obviously your early career that children's tv what was that world like was it-, it was amazing I loved I loved children's I've worked in children's tv on and off all my career um but I most loved that job because it was a channel called the children's channel um originally in a very original name um this is in the days when there were the terrestrial stations channel five was only just launching so it's tiny like, channel four was recent so it was really the three terrestrials 
Channel 4 and about to be Channel 5. And so you had these cable channels of which the children's channel was one. And it was kind of, it was run out of a little building in, uh, well, by Covent Garden, just, just near Covent Garden Tube. And it was probably 50 of us. And it was kind of quite straightforward, the business in those days, because you physically got tapes in that looked like physical tapes or film. And then they physically had to get digitalised. And my job was to get them from A to B physically. Like, again, nothing was emailed. You know, you physically took these blooming tapes around the place. And then a lot of, the, of our content wasn't original productions. It was acquisition. So it was brought from elsewhere. And um, we did a lot of the kind of nostalgic stuff. So I ended up working on shows that I'd loved as a child. So it was actually really lovely. And I met, well, I met my kid's dad there. You know, I, we, I made some very good lifelong friends there. I was there for three years. And, um, yeah, it was a brilliant, and it was so exciting to me, you know, coming from a background where my parents were teachers, to be in London working in television, I just couldn't quite believe it, you know, how exciting it was, and that some people's, like, parents maybe did those kind of jobs. To me, it was like, wow. So, yeah, it was, I was really, you know, I was, I was like the cat who got the cream with that job. I loved it. It's yeah. interesting because we had a um, journalist on before, in the previous uh, series, and he was saying that he worked on News Round in Norwest for Radio. Oh, and yeah. He actually said that that was one of his favourite jobs, oh. working on children's telly. I'll have known a lot of the same people as, <laughs> as him, I guess, yeah, back so in those days. Yeah. Really good fun, just because it's kids, you can be oh, more fun. And it's, such a laugh, yeah, such a laugh. And you and you do events for them, and they come into the offices, and you do competitions, and because it was a small company, we all knew everybody. So there'd always be piles of things, all the letters and little things that the kids would send in, and the person who was in charge of sorting them out, that would all be all over a table in the middle of the room. And it was really sweet. Yeah, it was very sweet. It was a very, very good job. But obviously, you mentioned earlier about overachieving and potentially and things like that. And obviously, you saw some quite rapid career progression at the beginning of your career. Yeah, I've, I was kind of, I was I was lucky with my career progression. And, and again, it wasn't, none of this was a, really, really wasn't a well-laid plan. And I, I, I definitely was ambitious and determined, but I don't think I knew quite what I was determined to do. So yes, I left. Um, I, I left the Children's Channel and moved to the Netherlands, moved to Holland, um, and ended up with some fairly senior roles with a couple of people over there, a production company and a broadcaster. And because I was English speaking and had some good solid experience with some big names in the UK, I got much more senior roles there than I would have got if I'd stayed in the UK. And then after three years there, then I I um I interviewed for a job with MTV. So this was in the kind of early nineties when MTV was just a music, it was a music station and it, it pretty much just played videos, that was it. And it was the only job I've ever applied for from an advert in a magazine. So it, there was an advert for that job in a, in broadcast, the trade magazine, that's, that's still the TV trade magazine, the big one. And I applied for it and I was living in Amsterdam and they flew me over to London for my first interview. And you know, I was like, whatever I was, 26. So it was so exciting that anyone, and, and I loved MTV, I watched it all the time over in Holland. It was the only thing you could get that wasn't Dutch apart from the BBC. So I lived for MTV. So I got flown over for an interview in London. I was so excited that anyone, and business class, I was so exciting. And then I got through that round of the interview and then they were like, right, we're going to have to fly you to New York for your next interview. I'd never been to the States, let alone New York. And I was so excited. And I remember having my interview there and desperately wanting the job and um, the, at Times Square they've got all those big like buildings with lights you know a bit like Piccadilly Circus 
And at the time, Beavis and Butthead was like the big, one of the only non-music things MTV did. And Beavis and Butthead were up in lights on Times Square for some advert. Huge. And I remember like standing at the foot of Beavis and Butthead on Times Square and praying to Beavis and Butthead, to the gods of Beavis and Butthead, that I would get that job. I desperately wanted it. And, and amazingly, I got it. So um, that that was a bit of um, a transformative step for me. And, um, and, and that definitely got me into a whole other league of jobs, really. I was going to say, because you've had a lot of experience in TV, I think it was on your website, so it's over 25 years yeah. experience Yeah, I think now media. it's 30, but I maybe oh, don't right, like yeah. to say that. <laughs> still the same, over 25, over there, still exactly. the same. Yeah. <laughs> still is over 25. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so throughout that time, what roles have stood out as like highlights? Well, that role was amazing. So that MTV role, I but it, I reported into to very, very senior people at MTV just because because there was no one doing what I was doing. And I was, I was in London, um, and I was across reporting into New York, responsible for getting all of the MTV content out around the world. So literally getting producers and broadcasters on board with the content. And my counterpart was a guy similar age to me and he was over in New York doing it. And we were both cut from similar cloth in that we worked hard and we were entrepreneurial, but we also liked having a a laugh. So he and I literally just travel around the world with all this MTV content, showing it to people and getting people to buy it and going to Cannes and going to Las Vegas and going to all these trade fairs. And it was such a laugh. And he was he was amazing. He was the son of um, of a, an airline, um, sort of massive name in a, an airline called Braniff Airlines over in Mexico. So he had a fascinating kind of life story and family. So that was amazing. So I went from virtually never having travelled to travelling the world and kind of running a business that was really exciting and fleet of foot and brilliant. I had so much freedom. And then I suppose the other jobs that have stood out to me would be um, when I became managing director of a production company, Action Time, which went on to be bought by ITV, by Carlton Television. Um, That was really exciting and that was my first taste of the boardroom. Um, By then I was in my very early 30s and I was a young young mum of two young kids. And then then I did lots of other, you know, set my own company up, did lots of things. And I suppose the, the biggest job I've ever had was the one I had for the last 10 years, which was a senior vice president at Viacom. And Viacom owns Paramount, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, MTV, among others. Um, and so, yeah, for 10 years, I ran a massive team, had a, you know, huge, huge budget and worked across some of the most interesting content with some of the best on and off screen talent in the world. So that wasn't a bad 10 years either. Um, but 10 years was enough with that job. I got, I got ready to do something else. So you said about your experience with the boardroom there. Do you think that's one of the things where once you've, you're in, it, in that realm of boardrooms, you, you can then stay at that level across or is it quite hard? Is it to move? Um, it's not, it, well, <coughs> on the one hand, you build a reputation. So uh, you, you, I talk a lot about imposter syndrome because nowadays I make my living out of um, comedy combined with sort of um, public speaking, sort of TED talk type speeches. And one of the things I talk about is imposter syndrome. And again, it might be reassuring for any of your listeners who don't know what that is or haven't put a name to it. So imposter syndrome is, you know, the fear of being found out. And I've spent my whole life propelled by the fear of being found out and the thought that underneath it all, I really am probably not adequate enough to be anywhere, let alone leading people. So you never know what your perception is because the way you perceive yourself might still be as a bit of a fraud. So it, it always amazed me when I was at that level in television that people sort of knew who I was and thought a lot of me because I, I never thought a lot of myself. 
Um, so I think, yes, when you get a reputation, and I was a hard worker and I did do my job well, and it was quite outward facing, and I spoke a lot in you know industry conventions. So I suppose, yeah, people want to work with you again. But what I would say as well is there are less jobs at that level. So if you end up leaving a job and you very much want a particular type of a role, there will only be maybe 20 of those roles in the whole country. And if one's not free, it doesn't matter how great you are, you're not going to get it. Um, so, and even now I get called, I mean, I, I really don't ever want to work in those type of roles. Again, I do do bits in television still, but really not on that side. I don't want any kind of boardroom responsibilities. But I still get lots of calls from people who really sort of think I would be very, very, who think it would be an offer I couldn't refuse. Like maybe that's what I'd love to still be doing. And it's definitely a choice I'm not. So, so yeah, I think if you're, if you, I've always just believed in walking the walk and doing what I think I'm asking others to do. So I was fairly straightforward as a board member and I just kind of like tried to lead well, lead kindly, lead decisively and treat people all right. And I think that seemed to, seemed to serve me well. Yeah. So obviously you've had a, quite an expansive career over the media. And what would you say the biggest learnings from that? Like for somebody who's wanting to enter that, Realm now and thinks that's the levels I want to be hitting. What should they be thinking? Yeah, about? I do. T- I do talks to um, kind of graduates and stuff um, sometimes yeah. about this, and it's it's well. I guess a couple of things. One is that um, to go into it with your eyes wide open. Why do you want to work in the media? And if it's because what you consume as someone watching stuff really appeals to you be sure that what you're trying to get into in the media is going to be anything to do with that because you can have jobs in the media that are very very far removed from creativity and content and in fact most jobs in the media are very far removed so I would certainly say think about what the role is and why what your actual motivation is and if you're expecting kind of glamour and showbiz it's it's really not like that a lot of the time Um, I think being really tenacious is still massively helpful it's hugely competitive and if anybody gives you any recommendations or you get any link or just keep using your kind of initiative to think right how can I approach that who do I approach there's no excuse not to be able to do that now with all that is available to everybody Um, and to use the you know work out via whatever social media platforms you know via Twitter via LinkedIn whatever just track who are the voices you admire why might they be able to help you and it's it's well, it's not easy to get access to people and it depends who you're trying to get access to but people are often very flattered to be asked to be an expert and if you say to somebody you know could I trouble you for 10 minutes of your time this is what I'd like to know I'd love your advice and literally narrow down the time amount tell them what it is you want out of them even say to them I'm not expecting you to be able to get me a job but I'd love your wisdom you you will find that of the 10 people you approach maybe one will say yes each time and then I think the other thing is that um, is to if anyone does give you a lead to to take it, you know, to never sort of be apathetic about it, and to be willing to be really humble about what you're asked to do. I mean, you know, there's nothing I haven't done in the media, and I still have a real humility in how I will handle anything. If somebody needs chairs moving before a speech I give because no one turned up to do it, you know, do it. Obviously, I'll do that. So have some humility and be willing to learn as you go. Um, but really, if you're very determined to do it. Of course, you'll manage to do it. I mean, there's there's no question about that. You just got to keep your eye on the ball. There's uh, three recurring themes from this podcast have definitely <laughs> been like being grateful to people, mm-hmm. tenacity, and like your network. Your network is. Someone said to me quite early on in my career, if if when you contact people in your network, they sense you are networking, you're not doing it right. And what that means is you don't just contact your network when you want something. I have this a lot, people who just don't ask me anything for years and then they're like, hey, so I'm going for this job. Can you get me in to see, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge or whatever? And I'm thinking, hold on, I've not heard from you in eight years. 
you haven't bothered to keep this and you haven't even approached this in a generous way and it does make me think oh you know I can't do favors for everyone so yeah just use your network respectfully and try and keep relationship be a good communicator and a good person not just when you want something you know just you, it's an art form and and also I'm not a cynical networker if, if I really don't like the person I'm networking with and I don't admire who they are professionally I don't really even if they're really powerful I, I don't really want to network with them so I do tend to network with people I respect and who hopefully respect me Definitely keeping the principles is key. Keeping to your values, you know, who are you? And, and you know, a lot of my talks, I talk about um, in life turning up the volume on yourself, not turning it down, you know. So how, how do you stay true to who you are and what you wanted? Because you don't want to de-self at the age of 22 in your first job and not find yourself again until you retire. You know, people listening to this podcast will probably have careers that span more than 50 years. So what are you going to do for those 50 years? And is it going to be fulfilling? Is it going to matter at the end of your days what you did? And all of that is the vital stuff you know do something that actually matters to you and if it if what you're doing doesn't matter find something else to move towards would you say that was a motivation for you changing jobs some of the times like that enjoyment that yeah lost the motivation kind of thing yes it was and so I just bit water everywhere as, as it's an audio medium I didn't need to say that uh, but anyway now everyone knows how human I am uh, yes uh, I tend to get really bored uh, I get a bit I get a bit twitchy after quite a short time so Three years was usually my average um, before I needed to change jobs. And then obviously the exception to the rule was was the Viacom role that I did for 10 years. But I never meant to do it. Like I, I fell into it. I did a bit of consultancy for them. And then somebody left and they said, oh, could you do the SVP role for a bit? And I was like, okay. But I still did a bit of other stuff on a fifth day of the week. And I, it took me about three years to unpack my stuff. Like my PA was like, oh, do you need to unpack your stuff now? Because it looks like you're kind of here to stay. I was like, oh, yeah, I suppose maybe I am. I never meant to be there for 10 years. So that was the exception to the rule and that was the last hurrah before I moved out of that kind of job. Yeah. And was it in that role you brought Spongebob and South Park yeah. to our TVs? Yes, yes, we were responsible for, for getting South Park on air around the world and Spongebob and we worked on X on the Beach and Geordie Shore and yeah, um, all, of the, all of those things. Uh, yeah, they, they all came through our kind of catalogue and um, the, the, roast, uh, the, the roast battles, the comedy roast battles that, that some of your listeners might like, you know, those came through us. Yeah, we worked on amazing content and I was incredibly lucky to, yeah. That's brilliant. So it was during that time at Viacom that you actually started to make the transition over to comedy, wasn't it? Yeah, five years ago, yes. Yeah. So what was your first comedy gig that you... Uh, well, I did. I had a lot again. Lots of your listeners may not know who Joan Rivers is, but obviously they can Google it while I'm talking. But Joan Rivers, um, it, who some of your listeners will know, is is one of the most iconic, or was she? She died a couple of years ago. An iconic um, U.S. female stand-up who took Hollywood by storm back in the sort of 60s and 70s when there were no women doing what she was doing and very few female comedians. She'd always been one of my kind of icons and heroes, and I ended up meeting her a few times and introducing her to the stage a few times at business events and she over dinner said to me you should um you should think about stand-up and I said Joan I'm 45 I've got a massive job I've got two kids I'm a single mum the ship has sailed and she said Kelly I'm 81 and you're going to look back at being 45 and know you were in the thick of it and think why didn't I so Spurred on by her words, I did Logan Murray's Stand Up and Deliver course down in London, and I did what, how that lasts like eight or nine weeks. Logan's fantastic. 
And then the end of that course, as it says on the title of the course, is that you do deliver a five-minute stand-up set. So the end of the course was that we all did a five-minute set in a proper gig that people properly came to, most of whom knew us all, so were quite charitable. And then I, I just kind of never stopped really after that. I just kind of really, really worked hard at it and did a, a gig kind of pretty much continuously ever since. Because you had quite an interesting situation when you were at Viacom with the Gotham Comedy Club. Um, the new act competition that you entered. You yeah, so, yeah. So I did it. I did the re, so my my corporate name was Caroline Beaton, <clears throat> which is my birth name. Um, Callie Beaton. Callie's the name that all my close friends and boyfriends and family have always called me. So when I started comedy, I wanted to be called Callie, partly because it felt like a softer, nicer name. It was a name that had more affection for me, but also because it was not the same as my corporate name, and so I wasn't instantly Googleable as Callie Beaton. And then. Um, less than a year into doing stand-up I went and took part in the Gotham Comedy New Talent Contest in New York when I was on a business trip and then I made it through from the heats to the semi-finals and then somehow won the semi-finals and got through to the finals and um, and I'd only just been in New York for a board meeting and I had to come back like three days later and I couldn't charge it to the company because I was only there for my own benefit so I kind of on air miles flew myself out stayed on a mate's sofa and then the president of Viacom saw me in the office he was like what are you doing back you were here last week for the board meeting I said oh I'm just seeing friends and and then he went out to get a sandwich or whatever and, and there were all these billboards all over Times Square for the finals of the Gotham comedy competition and my face was on and he came back and he said are you Callie Beaton I said yes uh, and he said right hold on and he went to his big corner office and I was like oh no <laughs> and then he called me and he said are you gonna give this job at least 18 more months no matter what happens with your comedy career. And I said, yeah, I will. And he said, okay, good luck to you. And that was it. And then the cat was out of the bag. Um, And then quite a lot of people from the office came to the gig that night. And that's when the two worlds became less separated. Um, And yeah, everybody knew I was doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that's a good little story. <laughs> it's one way to get your P45 <laughs> given to you, but luckily it didn't go that way. I was going to say, especially for someone in such like a high-up role, there could have been a lot more... It definitely could have been worse. I don't, yeah. I, I don't think they ever asked me this question, but it was common sense to me that I never, ever spoke about work. I never referred to my other life. I still don't. I've never, ever gone on stage and mentioned anything to do with my professional life, and I never will. Um, partly to keep my powder dry and be respectful of my corporate identity, but partly because I think it's also really alienating. People don't want to see a comedian in a stand-up going, well, you know, when I was flying on with my BA gold card in first class and they forgot to give me the warm, you know, the warm cashew nuts, I don't think the audience is going to warm to you. So I, I don't really feel like that person when I'm a comedian and I don't really mention it. <laughs> so. And obviously you've said about giving it 18 months. Yeah. When was it you realised that you wanted to stop the Viacom stuff and tech comedy as your career? I'd say about three years into doing comedy when I started to get a bit of... I'd done my first episode of QI by then. Done a few things on Radio 4, including the Museum of Curiosity. I was doing all right on the circuit and I sort of realised... I kind of realised there was more to be done and I also realised it was a limit to what I could do in radio and telly on screen and on air if I had a big off-air job. No one, and again, I don't think anyone from Farcom will be listening to this, but if they were, I would say nothing but incredibly positive things about them. They never tried to kind of clip my wings or cramp my style. They were brilliant. 
But it just became clear to me that if I was serious about performing, writing and all the public speaking I do, you know, I couldn't do the public speaking I do if I worked for Viacom because it would be a conflict. I go into massive corporations and I speak about whatever I want to speak about. And clearly a mass, you know, a media giant like Viacom couldn't have me trotting around telling other companies how to kind of engage yeah. staff and, and perform well. It would be a conflict. So, so yeah, it, it all reached a tipping point. Um, also at the same time my kids left home so suddenly financially I had more freedom I'd been the sole breadwinner for 15 years so that's not to be kind of sniffed at and I'd kind of done my bit for them as much as I could financially so I was able to think well I can take a risk now a little bit so it was just a perfect confluence of events really that that, that gave me the courage to just leap both feet into comedy and performing and speaking yeah I was gonna say a lot must have changed because you were saying earlier about that imposter syndrome and confidence and actually to jump into comedy is quite a big change do you feel like you had that confidence at that stage no definitely not and actually there's nothing been worse for my confidence than comedy because <laughs> you fail so you fail so much there's a brilliant quote by Samuel Beckett which you may know which is ever tried ever failed no matter try again fail again fail better so Samuel Beckett said that and um, I've got that written large in my um, my office at home and I say to people when I do my public speaking, you don't ever learn as much from a good gig as you do from a bad gig. And I've never had so many bad gigs as since I've been a stand-up because in the corporate world, if you work really hard, you pay attention to what's required of you, you'll, you'll probably do well. Stand-up, as you know, you know, you, you can really work hard, write hard, do your absolute best, and you'll have some diabolical gigs where people just don't like your stuff or you have an off night. It's very um, whimsical. It's really hard to work out what works. It takes comedians years to get good. So no, it's, it's terrible for your confidence and it's all highs and lows, you know, just when you're like, you'll have a day when, you know, the other day I gigged with Rob Delaney and he like tweeted about how great I was and I was like, yeah, Rob Delaney from Catastrophe thinks I'm amazing, you know, woo. and then the next day you're in some place and only three people turn up to your show and, and you know, and they hate it and one of them walks out in the middle and that can happen in two consecutive days and then in the middle of those two days I'll go and do some TED talk for 5,000 people, you know, I did one the other day with Emil Clooney and Eddie Redmayne, but then that's same night I'm grappling with how to write a show and that no one thinks I'm funny so it's it's a really weird roller coaster I mean, I'm not complaining I'm really lucky most people my age don't have lives like mine and I'm delighted I do but my goodness it's not good for your confidence or self-esteem would you say it was passion for comedy that got you in Made you make that leap then? Yes, it's. I mean, it's a really, it's a properly vocational thing. I think comedy and performing, it's like, it's, it's something really deep within you that makes no sense, and it now makes sense to me. Having parked being wanting to act, you know, back when I was a teenager and in my early twenties, and also wanting to present and then not doing it because I was just too insecure. I've rediscovered a thing that I thought I, I thought had kind of killed off. I didn't. I didn't know I had a capacity to write and have an interesting voice and I'm only just finding what that voice is. I've been all right as a stand-up for a while because my career as a speaker and as a grown-up has helped me be all right on stage. I seem plausible. But I've only just started to find my voice as a stand-up. I've only just started to find my voice as a writer. I've just started writing articles that are me and that are interesting and I love. I know for sure I'll write a book over the next couple of years. I know for sure that this Edinburgh show I'm doing is far more interesting a voice than anything I've ever dared to do before. So five years into stand-up, five decades into life, I'm just about having a little bit of a crack at who I might actually be. And obviously you've got um, a background in TV and radio. Do you think that's helped you at all? 
do you know, I've been really stupid, or maybe not, I decided that it was a bit like, you know, I want to be a plumber, you know, that being the analogy for wanting to be a comedian, I want to be a plumber, so there's no point me going and asking someone if they can get me a contract to do someone's whole house unless I can unblock a toilet. So I, I really did think I'd need to learn from the ground up, and you do, because what's the point of me using my network to get an opportunity if I'm not ready for it? So no, I really haven't used my network, and, and pr- I pr- maybe I should have done more, Um and I sometimes think, God, I probably could have got more or could still get more if I did that. But then I think it is a sort of a meritocracy. And, and unless I think there's something that I really should be doing that I know how to do that I'm not, then maybe I should let my agent and people who believe in me lobby for me. So no, I've, I've not used my network. Um, but it does mean that I went into stand-up with my eyes wide open. So I remember knowing people like Jason Manford, John Bishop, people like that when they weren't very well known, when they were just sort of getting there through my day job um, and so it was no surprise to me how hard the journey would be for a stand-up that, that none of this has surprised me because I saw it firsthand so in that regard it helped me psychologically but have I used my little black book to get myself my comedy and speaking opportunities then no I haven't even though I probably should have done yeah I listened to it's very different but I listened to a podcast with um, Tom Kerridge um, yeah. the chef on, yeah, yeah. and he was saying about when he was on the Great British menu or the cooking show that um, they'd come over to him with the camera and they'd be like oh can you do a bit and he realised that if he gave them what he wanted on that bit of camera then they'd leave him alone for the rest of the mm. session so he could get on with cooking yeah, yeah, people yeah. who weren't great on camera had to spend 10 minutes doing yes. that the cooking time and that's really interesting isn't it I suppose has your understanding of TV and media helped you when you've had them opportunities in that sense, potentially? Definitely, yeah. So what I would say is I'm very thoroughly media trained. So if you plonk me on, you know, when I did my first QI, I was really terrified of doing it. And, and I'd only been going as a comedian a couple of years. So that was very early to get that opportunity. And I got it because I'd been on Museum of Curiosity and it's a lot of the same people do it. Um, and somebody said to me before I went on it, um, they said, you know, Callie Beaton as a comedian, this is very premature as an opportunity, but for Caroline Bean, who's been doing really tough corporate panels and speeches your whole life, and you're used to speaking in rooms full of men and being heard eloquently and having points to make. So that person has earned this right over a period of decades. And actually that really helped my confidence in the room, um, was thinking, yeah, actually I do know how, I have got something to say, I do know how to say it, and I know I will say it, and I will not be intimidated by people around me. And that probably is about as good advice as you can have for your first panel show. I mean, everyone thinks I've got to be funny, and it's great if you can be funny. But above all, say something, be heard, and funny will start to come. So, um, so yes, I know when I get opportunities or even doing things like podcast with you or radio interviews, I'm very, I'm kind of used to how to position things that might be interesting to people, hopefully. Your listeners might be like, nah, not today. <laughs> Doesn't sound very interesting to us. <laughs> I suppose that what you're saying about panel shows, it sounds a bit like the boardroom, really. Exactly. Everyone's for their voice to be heard. And... Yeah, and, and it's a boys' club. I mean, it, it, luckily, they're getting less so. But yeah, absolutely. And, um, and not letting yourself... I, I talk on stage as a speaker, um, as a business speaker, about the idea of being a disruptor versus an imposter. So if you think about doing a little switcheroo, a little sleight of hand with imposter syndrome, and if you don't fit in, what if you celebrate you're not belonging? What if you work out why you don't belong and what you are bringing that no one else in that room is bringing? What if you have the courage appropriately to go in on that, not what has worked for everyone around you? Um, that is 
an incredibly powerful thing to start to dare to do but it does rely on you knowing who on earth you are to start with and like I said that took me a very long time to work out and I'm still grappling with it that's yeah. brilliant and I personally as well listen to um, podcasts like the Com Com Pod with oh Stuart yeah Dolphins who doesn't I'm yeah. seeing him for coffee in a couple of days so, trying to wheedle my way onto his podcast <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll ask him out straight Stu can you put Kelly on the podcast yes, there we go they're brilliant um, but, and I'll pay for the coffee on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> um, how? What's your writing style like when it comes to comedy? Is it a little notebook everywhere you go? I'm, I'm, that's the thing I've most struggled with is my writing. And I felt secretly, or not so secretly, very insecure about it. And I didn't really have enough time to write as much as I'd have liked when I had the big day job. Nowadays... It works in a variety of ways. Deadlines are really good for me. So having a deadline of the show has meant I've written loads for the show and doing I've done tons of previews and every preview I'll listen back and write more. So I've probably already written about three hours of material that will be boiled down to a one-hour show and that show's been performed in loads of different ways. Um, I do lots of emceeing and a lot of my new material comes from emceeing so maybe there'll be something I wrote down that percolated and then something happens in the room and then I try it and I'm like okay that has got something I always have on my notes bit of my iPhone I always have new material bits so ideas that come to me and I have an abundance of ideas but I don't always have the capacity to make them into stand-up never short of ideas um and I'm just, I'm a very undisciplined writer and that's probably one of the things I most don't like about myself um, is that I kind of, I'm like, oh, why don't you just do like an hour a day? That's all you've got to do. So I feel like that's probably the bit of me as a comedian. I, I kind of write live, really. I write on stage and my jokes get funnier because I perform them and they start as a zebra and they end up as an orange, you know, but they have to start there to become the funny orange. So it's, yeah, it's really not an impressive, I haven't got any impressive gems of like, this is how to achieve your creative best because I'm, I'm rubbish, but I do like writing articles and stuff. I do like writing opinion pieces. I find them easier to write, and I'm perpetually writing those. To the, I think I probably need to start doing a blog or something to get them out to the world, because otherwise I rely on someone publishing them, Yeah, which doesn't always happen. So the show that you're taking to Edinburgh this year is called Invisible. Invisible, yep. Is it the same one I saw back in November that was called Adults? It's very different to that show. It very... it's, it's really gone quite... It's still got the, the story in Iceland, um, so that, that there is, um, again, for your listeners... it. The, the sort of um, narrative arc is is about a near-death experience I had in, in Iceland, the country, not the shop. Um, and that that's the kind of arc of the story, but it, it's, it's quite... Uh, it's Obviously, it's a, it's a comedy hour, but it's got some quite dark, unexpected things in it. It's got a bit of the kind of um, sort of film noir, kind of, you know, Nordic kind of thriller stuff in it as well um so yes so it, it is it's a variation on the show you saw it's on its third title now it was called recalibrate then it was called adultery now it's sticking with invisible for sure yeah that's good so you've had that experience up in edinburgh before yes and was that with a with Catherine Burhart you went up so she and i did a joint show called cat call um short for Catherine and callie cat call back in 2016 and then in 2017 i did a solo show called super callie fragile lipstick which was definitely the best title ever and I should have saved it for like a much bigger show. Um, so that was two years ago and then I didn't go up last year. So this is my second solo show in Edinburgh. And how do you find that Edinburgh experience? Awful. Yeah, I, I think it drives over. I think I'm already too unstable to cope with life, let alone Edinburgh. I think it's quite isolating and weird um, and amazing. You know, the fact I'm really loving this show. So the fact that I'll get to do this show, hopefully in front of hundreds of people, is incredible. Um, I love a lot of people in the comedy world and I've got some lovely friends 
but you know I'm somebody who like lives in a nice house in London with my nice friends and you know I've got I've got an, I've got an all right setup so to go and stay in some god awful place for a month without everyone I know and love back home is a bit of a weird one but yeah for all the weirdness it it's it's incredible you know I, I the fact that this is the way the biggest show I've ever done you know Mick Perrin's taking me up there I've got amazing support from PR management director the fact that this show is happening the year I turned 50, you know, wow, what a privilege. You know, that's 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 an incredible thing. And I, up to my grave, I'll be grateful this year's happening. It yeah. is. I've been up to the Fringe Festival a couple of times, but only for it's a nuts, weekend. It's nuts, isn't it? And that is enough. You weekend. do feel like you've been smashed, you know, sort of hit in the face with a kind of, you know, paintball gun yeah. or whatever the analogy would be. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not for the faint-hearted uh, and it requires, it's like a proper stamina exercise. Oh, yeah, yeah like five, six, seven shows a day going yeah, right yeah. through, it, yeah. yeah. You, f- you come back and you feel like you've just been put in a washing machine, yeah. Yeah, you need a week off to recover from the weekend. You do, you're back. not wrong, Matt. <laughs> yeah, so I can't imagine what it's going to be like as, a, as an actor. Like yeah, well, it'll be crazy. good, it'll be rich for anecdotes afterwards, is all I'll, <laughs> that's what I'm going to think about in my dark days. So obviously, you've been doing comedy for a few years now, like you said, five years doing comedy, and you've received some good awards and recognition uh, during that time, I think. Some of what I saw was um, Charles Law's 2017 Comedians to Watch. Yeah, so yeah, that's that was great. And Chortle, obviously, <coughs> are the ones that everyone sort of looked to. Um, I could do with a good, I could do with a good review from Steve Bennett or from someone from Chortle for the show. So we'll see. Um, I'm really hoping the show. Really, what matters to me this Edinburgh. Um, is, you know, I wouldn't presume to think I'm even with any chance of any awards, but what I would love are two things, um, well, three things. One is that I've written the show I wanted to write, and that's what I've done, and I'm so proud of the show. Um, the second is that I get some decent reviews, and people, act, and the third is that people come to see it, that people who might like my voice and comedy might start to find out who I am. And if I could be filling small kind of theatres in a few years from now with people who want to hear my comedy... That would matter a lot more to me than having any kind of TV profile. Um, so for me, it's, it's it's absolutely the opposite of wanting fame. I really don't want fame. I've seen what that's like firsthand for people. But I do want to keep telling the stories I want to tell to people who want to hear them. I was just going to ask, what's the slightly longer term goal? You said they're about small theatres. Yeah. Is that where you kind of see this? To keep doing shows I want to do and have a following. Um, I, uh, radio is my big passion way over and above television. I mean, television's brilliant and I will not say no to hopefully more panel shows and appearances I'll get. That's brilliant. It's great fun to do and it raises your profile. I would absolutely hate to be a recognisable name because I think that you know is really not massively great for your life. Uh, and life is a little bit more important than what you do for half an hour on screen. Um, but radio, I love, um, and I think she said modestly, I do, I do well on radio when I do bits and bobs. So um, I've got a few podcast ideas. So maybe I'll be your com- competition soon, um, and a few radio projects. And um, that that's so radio is a big ambition. And then I absolutely love my public speaking career. And the good news is. As a slightly, as you get older and older, people really book you for that because you get you get the benefit of people thinking you've got wisdom. So I suspect I could be doing after dinner speeches and TED talk type things for many years to come, and I love that. So yeah, so that it's sort of um, I've got some ideas, and then and writing a book. I want to write a book. Cool. So yeah, I was going to say there's a few other things that you do on the, as well, like, like 
BAFTA voting member. Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's a lovely thing. Gosh, you know, that's that's definitely no hardship. So yes, I get the. So you know, I, I'm one of the lucky people who gets all the DVDs sent out to them in the autumn and get invited to screenings and get to cast my vote on who wins BAFTAs. Uh, and that's yeah, that's a that's a nice, that's a big old perk. Um, that sounds so really cool. There's nothing bad to say about that. <laughs> and then also, I've got on the development board of MTV Staying Alive Foundation. Uh, yes, that's right. I was involved in that. Actually, I'm not anymore. I was involved in that. When I was at MTV, and that's incredible. Yeah, an amazing friend of mine called Georgia Arnold, who does incredible work on the corporate social responsibility side at MTV. Um, fascinating stuff she's responsible for. So yeah, I had the privilege of being involved in that. Um, so yeah, no, I've been, you know, I'm I'm very lucky uh, that that interesting things happen, and I'm open to them keeping keeping happening. Yeah. As you said before, and um, that. You know, you've been up in Liverpool yesterday, you get to travel all over as well. Yeah, sometimes even more glamorous places than Liverpool, but, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves, but yeah. I remember you saying when you um, came up to Hull to do the Work in Progress show that you were saying about how you do a lot of gigs around where you live. Yes, And it's actually really nice to get out of that area and try the the um, content on some yes. completely different I'm audience. suspecting Hullians, yes, yeah. yeah. No, I love it. I love travelling around the place and I travel loads from my corporate speaking career abroad and all around the UK. I've just done my first weekends at the stand in Glasgow and the stand in Edinburgh. Um, and, yeah, it's, 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 it's a real leveller as well. And until you know if your stuff's... I mean, there's not... You know, I'm previewing Invisible all over the country because I don't need to know if comedy literate Londoners like my show... Um, I mean, I do, but that's not my whole audience. I need to know if a kind of, you know, rough pub in wherever will like my show as well, and it's got to appeal to lots of people. So, yeah, I, I'm all for travelling around, and I also live in Amsterdam part of the time, so I do lots over there as well. So, yeah, so I travel a lot. And uh, Just before we go on to the final four questions that I'm asking everyone, that you also um, still involved with Road Trip Media. Is that the company you sell yourself? Yeah. And is that just a public speaking arm of what you do? Uh, no, it actually, different? it's something different, yeah. So, yeah, so there are sort of three prongs to my career. So there's the public speaking and sort of after-dinner speaking and corporate speaking and awards hosting. So there's that side, kind of corporate engagements as a speaker and performer. Then there's the comedy and then the sort of other bit is, yes, I still run Road Trip Media, which was a creative consultancy I set up in 2003 when the legislation around content in the UK changed. So suddenly everyone had control of their international content rights and no one knew how to do anything with them. And that happened to be my area of expertise. So I set up a, and I'd also trained at that point as an executive coach and stuff. So I, I set up a business to do more coaching and consultancy. And then that business has always ticked along in the background alongside my Viacom career. And now, through Road Trip, I do work with some of the big companies. Um, I probably shouldn't say who they are. But anyway, I, I'm working with some of the biggest companies in media at the moment on various different initiatives at kind of board levels. So working, um, but mainly on sort of looking at uh, things like promoting gender equality in those businesses, um, unleashing kind of creativity in those businesses. So it's not really the same sort of stuff I've always done. So road trip work goes isn't anything to do with my agent or my management. That's a kind of television-type connected media business I still run. Right. So yes, I forgot to mention that. But yes, there's that as well. <laughs> that still happens. So much stuff going on. Yeah. Um, so finally, we've come to four questions I'm asking everyone across the podcast. Um, so first of all, who or what has been your biggest inspiration throughout your career? That's a really good question. Hmm, I have to really think about that. 
I mean, I guess the recent of recent, but one one who's been there in the background a long time is is Joan Rivers, who I mentioned earlier, and probably in stand up, I didn't realise how much she was part of my kind of lifeblood as what I had my but when Victoria Wood died, I realised how much you know as a kid I'd never really seen female comedians and I didn't really think I didn't think of her I didn't think of the name oh she's a comedian but I absolutely loved her and I suppose when you look at what she did and when and how she must have sort of permeated my consciousness in a certain kind of a way so yeah maybe comedically maybe Victoria would I was certainly I was disproportionately sad when she died and then we touched upon this for the corporate side of your career so maybe think about this in terms of uh, comedy but what's the biggest learning you've had from that experience so far uh being willing to fail and um i think sarah millicam says you know you're never as good as your best gig or as bad as your worst gig and she also says you're only allowed to sort of mourn a bad gig until i think she says 11 o'clock the next day you can get get a right cob on about it and then let it go and so probably um i still fail frequently on stage but less than i did but the big shift i've made is that when i have a bad gig it bothers me loads less I mean, I had one the other day for a group of people who were very sort of, um, I know this isn't a political podcast, but they were they were quite sort of old school men who were, I would guess, quite Tory, maybe not massively pro-women, and they hated my stuff, and I I got paid for it, and I came off, I thought, well, good, I'm glad you hated my stuff, because my stuff isn't meant for people like you, so fine. And that was a real breakthrough. I thought, oh, they didn't like me, and I didn't mind. So yes, I probably learned to have a bit of a thicker skin about failure. Yeah, That's good. And then, um, what's one tip for success and building your personal brand that you'd have for people listening? Uh, I think it is uh, building a compelling outcome. So how would you like your life to be? If you you could do anything and you couldn't fail, what would your life or your brand look like? So start from that point, you know, aim big and then flesh out what that looks like and and then start thinking about how can I start to move towards it. So in your life, if you create compelling outcomes that you can move towards rather than negative things that are triggered by what you don't want to do. I'm going to move away from that job. I didn't like it. Fine. What are you going towards? So create something compelling. And then it's just persistence, you know, just keeping, you know, what do they say? Perspiration is, is a great substitute for inspiration. There's loads of quotes like that. But yeah, just kind of hard work is a great substitute for talent is when I think about myself. You know, just crack on and don't give up. Um, and it won't be easy. And, you know, you're in for the long haul, just do it. And I still work damn hard and I've always worked hard so yeah work at it and decide what it is and do it I was listening to um, Tommy Kyle the boxer the other day and he was saying pretty much he knew he wasn't the best boxer so he knew he had to work hard yeah, with yeah. everyone else to even get yeah. to where he is well he's talking about how I feel about myself as a comedian <laughs> and then a nice one to end on but I think this might be quite tricky for you because you've had such a mixed <laughs> career but what's the best moment in your career so far oh that's an interesting one do you know, maybe I'm just thinking of one where I, I kind of uh, kind of punched the air and cried. Was I, I did my um when I finally worked out an ending for the new my new show, Invisible, I did um, I did three shows at the Brighton Fringe. And I the morning of my last show, I sat with a really close girlfriend over breakfast and we sort of I was just like, I can't work out the ending and I can't, it's really bothering me. And then we, we sort of talked about a thing and then I did it and the whole show just gelled and I was like I came off, I think it was the first time I felt like a proper comedian. I was so proud of myself for what I'd... Even though no one in the audience would have known why that was, for me, it was huge progress. So it was a quiet moment in a cupboard backstage in a 
you know, shipping container that was my room at the Brighton Fringe. But for me, I'd made huge progress and that felt quite emotional. Yeah. I suppose unless someone's coming to every show of yours, they don't realise that it's no. different to the others. And all my mates had been at the other two, so literally I'd had like throngs of mates at the other ones and then this one, uh, nobody I knew was there. So I did a kind of like, yay, high five. And then I and then I was like, all right, well, I'll just get the train home now, feed the cats and go to bed. So, <laughs> But that felt like a good moment. It's brilliant. And then obviously if people want to find out more about you, how can they... Find you on social media uh, and things like that. Yes, so I my Twitter and uh, Instagram handles are at Callie Beaton, so C A L L Y B E A T O N. Um, I'm on Facebook uh, and I have a website which has all the details, has all my kind of news, gigs, everything you need to know about me, and that's CallieBeaton.com. So it's all fairly common sense stuff. And if someone's coming up to the fringe this year, where, do you know where you're performing? I do, yes. So I'm on at the Assembly George Square. So nice central venue. Um, I'm on there every day from the 31st of July until the 26th of August. I have one rest day. can't remember which day it is. But apart from that, I'm on every day. And I'm on at 10 past five um, in the afternoon, which is obviously a great slot if people want to also catch some of the big names in the evenings. So I'm deliberately not going head to head with the real massive names. Um, and I think, I think tickets are selling really well already. So yes, George Square, Assembly George Square, Studio 4, and I'm on right through the fringe at 10 past 5 every day. So that makes me feel tired just hearing about it. And you do other, <laughs> as you know, you do other sports as well. So you don't just do your show, you do lots of other stuff up there. I mean, yeah, I do not know how this is going to go, but I know I've got a fair amount of energy, so I'm going to have a good crack at it. Brilliant. Thank you very much for being part of the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So there we have it, Callie Beaton. As we mentioned at the end there, you can see her show up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this summer, so be sure to check her out if you're going up. As ever, it would be great if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you could subscribe, leave a review, and maybe even pass it on to a friend. Also, if you have any suggestions slash feedback, you can contact me at the MJ Social on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, thanks for listening.